Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. Today is January 19th, 2024, and my name is Alex, and I'm joined, as always, by my dear friend and colleague, Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, I feel like you and I have been podcasting all week long, but we have more stuff to talk about, somehow. We do. I mean, and that's a good thing. Lots going on. Yeah. There's used to be this, like, you know, ebb and flow to the news cycle in the tech world throughout the year. Like, in August, everything would shut down, and then, like, December through January was slow. Not so much anymore. I mean, we started off this year with a bang. It's been busy... Ever since I got back on the second, I'm kind of impressed. That's true. It it really like, I thought I would ease back into the year, but no, it was like just crazy from the beginning. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know what? The good news is we've had lots of fun. And if you didn't notice, we had Aileen Lee of Cowboy Ventures on the podcast yesterday. It should be in your feed. So when you have finished with our roundup, go ahead and listen to that. It's a fantastic interview. We grabbed her right after she wrote a retrospective, a 10-year recap on her original post that coined the term unicorn over on TechCrunch. Lots of good stuff in there. Data, interesting tidbits, the future of venture, startups, etc. A hearty recommendation. But on today's show, we are going to talk about a couple of deals of the week. One from Pomelo, one from Tandem, and then one bonus deal from a company that's pronounced Brick, but is not spelled the way you think. Then in the first theme, we're doing an AI check-in, uses, risks, and what the C-suite is thinking today. And then we'll wrap with will startup valuations recover in 2024? Maybe not. So, pack show today, Marianne. We have to start off with a company that I thought meant grapefruit, but it's actually a different kind of fruit. Pomelo. Who knew? <laughs> I didn't even know that. So, hey, I learned something new every day. Thank you, Alex. I wrote about this company called Pomelo, and it's really fun and interesting for us as reporters to cover companies as they grow. I first wrote about Pomelo in 2021 when they raised a seed round of nine, nine million, I believe it was. At the time, there were pre-product and pre-revenue, which wasn't uncommon in 2021, not at all. But unlike many other startups that raised pre-product and pre-revenue in 2021, Pomelo has continued to grow and raise money. And this week, they announced a $40 million Series B. And the company, yeah, which is pretty impressive, actually. The company is a payments infrastructure company based out of Argentina. And Kazakh Ventures led the round, included uh, participation from a a number of other investors, including Index Ventures, Monashis, and Endeavor Catalyst. So this was an interesting deal. Payments infrastructure, as we've talked about many times, has remained to be quite a resilient sector within the fintech space overall. In Latin America, we saw the acquisition of Pismo by Visa. Um, oh, yes. So, right. So here's another example of what appears to be a success story so far in the region. Now, when I think about Pomelo, when I think about Pismo, are, are these companies that are competing directly or are they actually in different markets? So the overlap is more model than geography. Yeah, that's a good question. And I, you know, I asked them exactly that. And now I don't remember all the details of their answer. Um, But, you know, there is some overlap. They don't do the exact same things and they don't serve the exact same markets. But there, there is some overlap between the two. Yes. Well, if there's some overlap today in five years, they'll be going tooth and nail in every single part of the market because I'm sure that wherever the other one is, they'll eventually end up as well. And that's good because more competition is always good for the end consumer. Uh, But Marianne, you also had some notes on how fast Pomelo is growing. Yeah. So they told me that last year they saw revenue increase by 3x or 200%. Of course, they didn't reveal 
uh, actual numbers, unfortunately. But yeah, so 3x growth in uh, 2023, they have over 100 corporate clients, which include banks, multinational companies, tech startups. And then they said total payments volume grew seven times in 2023. And that reached a processing capacity of 55 million transactions per day. That's a lot of transactions. With that kind of volume, your, your revenue really can stack up pretty quickly. And so I was going to make a joke, Marianne, about how they went from $1 in revenue to $3 and huzzah, 3x growth. But given that payment volume number, given the number of customers they have, probably larger. So I think, although I'm always annoyed by comparative growth versus hard numbers, in this case, I think we can know enough going into those numbers that it's a material company. Like this is a serious thing. It's got heft to it. And, you know, more evidence that not only is Latin America not over as a venture market, but also fintech remains not over as a venture market. So kind of good news for two of your favorite things. Yeah. And and I don't think I actually really detail specifically what they do beyond being a payments infrastructure company. They started out, actually, they only went live with their first customer in January of 2022, and they only supported prepaid cards in Argentina. Since then, they've evolved their model and they offer prepaid debit and credit cards to their customers in six countries in uh, Latin America, including Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Peru, Mexico. And they they say they they do it with a, or through a single integration and that they can do it a lot faster and a lot cheaper than traditional methods. Well, it's kind of what we see from a lot of people. Like the old API model was, we'll take all the complexity, we'll take all the issues, you just use this webhook or whatever, and then we'll make the magic happen. So this feels a lot like that. And just given how large the Latin American market is, how many different currencies, countries, payment systems, and so forth, I think abstracting that for the end consumer must be very popular. So not shocked to hear more from Pamelo. Marianne, take a guess. When will they be back on the show? When will the Series C land or when will they announce some hard numbers? You know, I'm... I'm not sure. And I'm not going to even venture to guess that, to be to be honest. They wouldn't share valuation with me. They did say it was a positive round, not a down round, um, which is good. And they did. They had raised an extension last August to their Series A, which took okay. place in October of 2021. So I don't know, but they, they're growing. They seem to be, you know, they're putting emphasis now on their credit card management platform, which is now a SaaS tool to help Got these companies it. manage their entire credit card business. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's sooner rather than later, but you know, I'm not, I'm not going to guess a specific time frame. Yeah. Also, everyone stop being afraid. Share hard numbers. It's what the cool kids do like Databricks. So you can do it too. All right. Now, my deal of the week is called Tandem. TechCrunch said that it gives, quote, modern couples an app to manage their finances together and separately. Now, Marianne, you and I are both married people. We have lots of married friends. And so I think we probably had in our personal lives all the discussions possible about the ways to handle money as a married couple. But what is the way forward for couples that are not married and may not want to actually have fully commingled finances? And the answer may be tandem. My first thought was, why do we need this? Why do we mean why? Isn't it obvious why? Like, isn't one of the number one things couples fight about is money? Yes. So this is the philosophical distinction between couples. So my view is, if you're going to be with somebody, throw it all in a pot, and, and share. And if you don't want to do that with somebody, well, that says a lot. However, I know, I fully understand, don't yell at me, that I am not in charge of how people should do things. And also, lots of people don't agree with me. They think that's silly. And that's why Tandem is kind of a cool way, I think, for, cus- for customers, 
couples, well, couples are customers, customers who are couples, if you will, uh, <laughs> to have their money integrated in a way that allows them to split expenses and share costs and save towards things, but without actually commingling their money. So it seems to be kind of like a bridge between the way that I view the world and the way that some folks do who keep their money separately. So that way they can actually just work together a little bit better. And then it kind of clicked. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there's a couple of things here. One, I think tandem is not just obviously aimed at married couples. They're very much also targeting just couples in general who maybe just live together, for example, but are not actually married. So I think that if you have not yet taken that step of marriage, the idea of like opening a joint account can be even more daunting or unappealing. So I think Tandem actually gives a really great way to address this with its app because like, for example, one of the co-founders was saying that she was tired of um, using Venmo to like share rent, groceries and plenty of other expenses. So, and and they didn't really want to have like a joint debit card or account, you know, because maybe like you already have have a card that you've been using for 10 years and you get reward points and you don't want to give that up, for example. So what Tandem does, it gives... You connect your credit card and or debit card. Tandem pulls in transactions. However, each partner only sees what the other wants them to see. And then couples can set up automated money transfers into a shared expense pot and then designate that money to certain expenses, for example, like rent or Netflix. And so far, more than 25,000 couples are using the app. I think this is, to be honest with you, I think it's brilliant. But Mary I do. But does it exist already? That's one of the things I did. I mean, I find it hard to believe this is the first time anyone's done anything like this. No, no. There, there are other things like Plenty, Honeydew, Zeta, Ivella, and Ensemble for divorced couples. But like you just outlined to me the most hellacious thing in the world. Choose what expenses to share. Choose what the split ratio is. <laughs> Choose when to move. I'd rather have less money and not deal with that bullshit. But I think you said something very important which is for people who want to maintain their points from their card. This is not aimed at people like me. Do you know what credit card I have? I have a Southwest credit card. Do you know why? Because when I lived in Chicago, I flew Southwest. I haven't lived in Chicago for over a decade, but I haven't gotten a new credit card because I don't want to open my credit. I I froze it like a thousand years ago, did the Equifax thing. And so I just had the same stupid credit card I got when I was in college, but I don't care because the points (laughs) are such a small thing in my life. And that's why when I look at this, I respect that it's important. I'm glad the Tangent team has found something that people want to use. They've managed over $60 million thus far in shared expenses for non-married couples. It just sounds like a lot of work. I don't think so. I really don't. It's a lot of work to have to Venmo your partner and and try to keep up with, oh, do I, how much do I owe for this? Or how much do I owe for that? So don't and, do that. And plus, I mean, like a lot of people just, you know, don't want, I don't think it's that they're hiding something from their partners, but they don't necessarily want their partner to know, okay, I just spent a hundred dollars on makeup, for example. So that's why they don't get the joint accounts. So I feel like this can appeal to a, a pretty large demographic. But why don't people just communicate more? And then not, you know, I don't, it just, I, again, I know that I'm wrong. I fully understand that I'm in the wrong here. I mean, I think, I think that there are plenty of people who feel like you do and plenty of people who feel like I do. That's the beauty of this world, right? Investors obviously (laughs) find this to be an attractive model. They got $3.7 million in funding recently. Yes. And, you know, over 25,000 couples using it doesn't sound bad so far. Managing about, they've already managed about $60 million in expenses. So, 
I will be very curious to see how this plays out. All right, uh, let's move on. And I want to throw a couple of notes in here about a round you just covered, Marianne, about a company called Brick, but spelled with a Q. What's up? Right. Yeah. So like Pomelo, this is a company that I've been writing about for years. So I guess I can, I kind of relate to investors when, when this happens. And my son put it this way the other day, and I thought it was a great way to put it because I was telling him how, you know, how hard it can be like picking who we want to write about and things like that. And I said, in a way, I feel like we're like VCs because we have to judge if a, if a company really does have a differentiator potential, so on. He said, well, yeah, you're, you are investing in the company. You're investing time. You're investing space on TechCrunch. And I thought that's a really great way to describe it for my 16 year old. But yeah, that's, that's sage level insight. Well I know. Right. So anyway, but I, I have been writing about brick And I think since 2020, and they have developed software to help automate finances within construction companies. And they have been using AI for years, like they claim before AI even was really cool to do so. They've had bots for years, technology they've built out. So they just raised an $8 million extension at $150 million valuation. So I thought it was interesting because these days we're seeing so many down rounds. So for them to raise at a flat valuation is actually newsworthy. Whereas, you know, that wouldn't wouldn't have been so much years ago. So a couple of questions here. One, $8 million at a $150 million valuation. This is, we should think of this as like, this is definitely a bridge transaction, right? Just kind of get them yes, to their exactly. Right, right. They didn't, they wanted to wait out the market. That's what the CEO told me, Bassam Hamdi. He didn't want to, they didn't want to, um, they decided to wait out the market and raise a smaller dollar amount with less dilution at a flat valuation rather than go out and try to raise a series C at this time. Okay, good. That, that puts in context for me. I fully understand that. Cool round, flat valuation, love it. Now, on the automating finances in construction part, I just spoke to a company yesterday that is uh, construction adjacent. I'm going to keep this under wraps until I think next Tuesday because I have a post coming. But I learned a lot about the, the world of materials that are used in construction. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that there's like three ring binders, cork boards, phone calls, friends to get quotes and bids and stuff. Is this that kind of construction finance or is this more like keeping track of like your employee payroll stuff? Yes. A lot of the business products processes. So like they automate financial workflows, like accounts payable, payrolls, accounts receivable, that kind of thing. Got it. Yeah. And that's just one, one aspect of their business. So they have these bots to uh, automate those processes. And then they also have, so they have another, they have two products. One is Brick Autopilot, which the CEO likened to Tesla's autopilot for your accounting group. (laughs) Tesla's? Well, you know, basically just saying, you know, these bots, they've trained these bots to learn how to read documents, apply logic to their contents, take actions, so on. And so their logic is that that way you can have less accounting staff too. Yeah, I know. That's great. I just wouldn't pick Tesla. I know. Well, full self-driving isn't. So I don't know. Bro, say Waymo next time. Waymo is very <laughs> impressive. Yeah. yeah. Then they, well, they have another product called Copilot. And that product, they said, automates the creation and administration of financial forecasting processes, such as job oh. cost forecasting, revenue recognition, revenue forecasting. All that stuff's pretty cool. And honestly, it's not the core competency of a construction company. It's just right. not. So if you can outsource it, good. 
Yeah, and that's one of the things they were saying. Um, and one of the investors also said, usually when you think about robots in construction, you think about like machines on a job site. And so Brick is like one of the few companies that are really, really like tackling robots in the back office. And interestingly, they, you know, all they're, they're focused on the North American market right now. They're looking to expand into the Middle East and Asia. They're uninterested in going into non, uh, I'm sorry, English speaking markets that, you know, might seem easy to enter, like Australia, for example, or the UK, they really see potential in the Middle East and Asia and uh, non-English emerging markets in Europe, which I thought was interesting as well. And when I asked about competitors, they pointed to UiPath and Automation Anywhere. Oh, that's really interesting because I think about that as more process mining Mm -hmm. and process automation versus financial process automation. But maybe I'm actually splitting the hairs too finely there. Yeah, maybe so. I thought it was an interesting as well. Well, we can't talk about process mining and AI without talking even more about AI in the enterprise. And we're going to hit on that the moment we get back from this very short break. Now, Marianne, we've been talking about generative AI now long enough that we're starting to see a little bit of the pushback to it, if you will, kind of the other side of the coin flip of hype. When it lands on tails, people start to tell you things like, hey, I don't know if it's actually going to work out that well. So I wanted to bring onto the show today a piece that our own Kyle Wiggers wrote that brought together a whole bunch of data points about generative AI in the enterprise and why he felt it wasn't a home run. I I, I'm calling it maybe a double or a triple in baseball terms, but there is some good data here. So the thing that really stuck out to me, though, was that a Boston consulting group or BCG poll this month says that 66 percent of the 1400 C-suite execs that participated in the event or in the survey were actually ambivalent or dissatisfied with their progress of Gen A so far. So not as optimistic as I thought, not as, um, you know, leaning into it as I anticipated. How did that data point hit you? I was actually kind of glad to see it because I I don't want to see companies getting carried away about AI. I I do think they should proceed cautiously. So I don't think that's such a bad thing. I I mean, obviously I think, oh, 89% rank Gen AI as a top three IT initiative for their companies in 2024. So I think they're all still like understand the importance and potential, but I I do think they are kind of proceeding cautiously, which isn't so bad. They did cite a shortage of talent and skills, unclear roadmaps, and an absence of strategy around deploying Gen AI responsibly. Yeah, I think the responsibly is the key thing there. And I also think that one of the impacts that these lawsuits are going to have against open AI won't just be the clarification of fair use, copyright, and so forth. I think it actually prov- provides a little bit of a, a drag on adoption mm-hmm. of Gen AI because suddenly it's not just how can I use it? How can I avoid my data getting caught up in someone else's model? But now it's what's this model built on? And if I use it, will there be any risk? So it, it is interesting to see the tension between Eh, we're not that far yet, but yes, it's also a priority for this year. Maybe we'll just have to wait longer to mm-hmm. better understand where things are going to land. I think but so. But 65% said that it, they think it will take at least two years before Gen A moves beyond the hype. So even if it's in a top three initiative this year, you know, people are still taking a relatively long time horizon. You know, two years is eight quarters. That's eight earnings calls. That's a long time. Uh, it's a long time in the in the tech world too, especially. So again, I do find that interesting. I, I I think it's not a bad thing that they're wanting to proceed cautiously. And I don't know if if we said this earlier, but about two thousand executives participated. So this isn't like a very small sample 
either. No, no, no. Yeah. And um, over 50% said they were discouraging Gen AI adoption over worries that would encourage bad or illegal decision-making and compromise their employer's data security. I found that interesting as well. I mean, basically, they're afraid of probably of getting sued or, you know, have security concerns. Yeah. I mean, this is why I think there's going to be a pretty big market down the road for companies to self-host their own large language models, or alternatively, they're going to have to buy some sort of software to segregate their data so it doesn't get hoovered up. I think Samsung had a problem with this. Companies like Skyflow are trying to like build solutions for it. But w- what data, where, and how is probably the most important question mm-hmm. in AI today. And I think we're a long way from sorting that out. But Venture capitalists are not sitting by the sidelines waiting for this to be sorted out. They're putting money to work now. And we have some data from CB Insights that says that valuations for earlier stage AI startups in 23 were one fifth or 20% higher than other companies raising fresh funding. I'm paraphrasing gently from the CB Insights data there. And I'm a little bit surprised that uh, it wasn't higher than 20%. At Series B, it was one and a half times higher. But uh, for earlier stage, only 20% premium. I thought it would be like, a hundred. Yeah. I'm a little surprised at that as well. Lower than I would have expected. I wonder if that's because early stage companies, no matter what, don't really have revenue. And so it's hard to apply Mm -hmm. a premium to them, but maybe AI startups that are a little bit more mature series B level have more revenue velocity and therefore they're earning. Right. Maybe they have more traction, more results. That's the very generous interpretation of the data. The other interpretation is that later stage investors aren't price sensitive and are just outbidding one another and therefore overinflating valuations early on that will cause damage down the road. Depends if you want to be cynical or optimistic, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would. Yeah, I would say that that's probably a factor as well. Yeah. Now, this is all kind of part and parcel of a conversation we've been having over on the TechCrunch Plus side. Becca Skutek on my team wrote a piece entitled, Will Startup Valuations Start to Recover in 2024? And her takeaway from talking to about three or four dozen investors was uh, they're not very sure. And so I think there's kind of two ways to think about the startup world. There's the top like one or 2% of companies out there that are raising like it's 2021. The first name that comes to mind is Anthropic, you know, Perplexity AI. There's a lot of AI companies that are raising at very high multiples because investors are betting they're going to grow 10, 100x from where they are. But it seems, Marianne, that for other parts of the venture ecosystem, the valuations forecast is not particularly strong. Yeah, it's not. I mean, the the hot sectors are seem to be right now climate, AI, and defense. Um, that's where investors uh, are are being drawn to to write their checks. I don't know. I, I know this is there's a lot of mixed feelings about this. One VC told Becca that early stage was likely to decline five to ten percent before they normalize. And another VC thought that they've already normalized and that also Series A has already reached that normalization and might actually climb in 2024, which I thought was was interesting because as we've talked about though, we've we definitely saw a surge in early stage deals in 2023. One of the reasons we felt like that was the case is that investors wanted to be able to get in and not have to be writing checks or, or pricing deals at really like inflated valuations because they're, you know, these companies are just starting out. So they have a little more control over that. So it will be interesting to see if that in fact happens like at the Series A stage. 
my favorite takeaway from this. While the Series A stuff is very interesting, and I love seeing people argue about when we've reached normal, when we might accelerate, when we might decrease a little bit more. Matt Cohen, the founding managing partner over at Ripple Ventures, says that he expects late-stage companies to go back to being valued at 5x to 10x ARR, which means that, according to Cohen's view, the upper bound for late-stage startups could be the lowest possible double-digit number. That's crazy, huh? And can I tell you a little story? Please. So I forget when this was, maybe like early 22. I wrote a piece that was like, get ready for single-digit SaaS multiples. And I was kind of over my skis. And I was like, what if this doesn't end up being true? I'm going to get mocked up and down Twitter. And then turns out, I was right on time. So you were. And that's a story about how you can get stuck in one perspective, which was me being stuck in the 2021 perspective and worrying about being too pessimistic when I was actually being still too optimistic, I think, in that piece. But to see Matt Cohen and the Ripple team think this, well, it does go to show that, you know, if you want to be a unicorn at 5x revenue multiples, you need $200 million worth of recurring revenue, wow. which is a lot more than I think, what, 98% of unicorns <laughs> that are private have right now? Probably so. Yeah, that's yeah. actually, yes, a lot more, I would think. Yeah, at 10x, by the way, it's 100 million. So we're literally right back to the old rule of thumb for what a company needs to go public as the new threshold entry point for unicorn status. Put that in a pipe and smoke it. It's going to be a whole new world once that trickles down through the unicorns of 21, which incidentally we talked about with Alien Lee, what's, what it feels just like hours ago. Because it was. Well, they don't know that. <laughs> this is coming out on a Friday, Marion. I was trying to throw a little like time travel joke in there. All right, friends, listen, uh, we're going to leave it there. We are back next week in full force. We'll have not only our regular Monday, Wednesday, and Friday shows, but we have an excellent interview coming up with Janae Tier from Crunchbase all about Q4 venture capital data and what she expects to see in the year to come. But Marianne, for now, we've got to let them go. But if they want more of you and I and the whole Equity team, well, Equity Pod over on X and Threads. And of course, our two sister shows, Chain Reaction and Found, are there and ready for you to enjoy. Bye, everybody. Bye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. And a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.